the global economy is a perpetual motion machine. And you know, what, what's happening right now has just never happened in the history of the world, which is you've effectively stopped the machine. Hello there from lockdown in the Bitcoin capital of the world, Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Jeremy Allaire, the CEO and founder of Circle, the company behind the USDC stablecoin. But before that, I have a message from my show sponsors. So we have two shows to go for Cointracker. Let's give them a boost. Let's give them a big kick before this all ends. As I've said in previous shows, there were some real challenges about having these as a sponsor. People were saying, what are you doing working with a tax company? And I get it. I don't want to pay tax. Do you want to pay tax? Of course you don't. But it comes with consequences. You can face court. You can face jail. So I do pay my taxes. Sadly, I wish I didn't. But I do have to pay my taxes. And so Cointracker turned out to be a very, very easy way to do this. Very easy to link up your wallets and exchanges and your taxes are calculated in two minutes. The filings work for the US, UK, Canada and Australia. And if you have less than 200 transactions, it is free to use. If you got more than that, well, they have a discount for listeners of this show. Just go to cointracker.io forward slash A forward slash WBD and Cointracker is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R dot I-O. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io, my newest sponsor, and a massive thanks to them so far. Massive thanks to them supporting the podcast. They could have pulled their advert with coronavirus kicking in and all the sports leagues stopping. They could have said, you know what, Pete? The time isn't right, but they didn't. They wanted to support the show. So a massive thanks to them and also for raising the profile of Bitcoin globally. They put a Bitcoin logo on a Premier League shirt. Yes, Watford FC in the Premier League every week walk out with a Bitcoin logo on their shirt. Very, very cool. Now, listen, if you want to try out Sportsbet, they do have so many different things. They have got some sports betting at the moment, the few sports that are going, which includes Russian ping pong. They've got a range of esports betting, including eFIFA. They've got their Bitcoin casino and my personal favorite, the poker rooms. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S P O R T S B E T dot I O. Okay, so onto the show, and this episode with Jeremy came on the back of my interview with Rao Powell. Now, firstly, can I apologise, firstly, for the show being out late, and if I sound sick, I am, I'm really, really sick, I've got food poisoning, and I've been in bed all day, but my amazing producer, Danny, worked around the clock to get this show out, so big thanks to Danny, but yes, I am super sick. But I've got an interest in stable coins. it's one of those weird ones, it's really weird, because I can see the use case. I know it was there with Tether for traders early on. It's a really easy way to come in and out of Bitcoin on exchanges. And also, it's an easy way of pushing digital dollars or digital fiat currencies all around the world. But some of these stable coins are built on platforms which people don't think have long-term viability or are questioning over. So it is a strange one, but I definitely see the use case. So back to why I did this. Well, Jeremy reached out and it was following my Rao Pao interview about the global macro economy during this coronavirus pandemic and he said be prepared as possible you should be holding physical cash own scarce assets such as bitcoin and gold and be cutting your spend and hustling so stable coins are an interesting one because they offer many trade-offs there is a risk about holding fiat currencies in the bank they are fractionally reserves whereas stable coins promote the fact that they're fully backed but they come with different trade-offs platform risk risk of hacking so it's a really interesting area to get into i talk about all of this with jeremy 
I put all the criticisms out of him and he comes back and answers very, very well. So listen, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I would like your feedback on this. It would be good to know what people think of stable coins. You can reach out to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, a massive thanks to all the um, emails and DMs I've received this week. I've got loads, actually. It's been amazing. I said to you during these uh, lockdowns, if you want to reach out to me, I will reply to you and it's great to hear from you. And I got... Must be at least 15 in the last week, maybe more. So thank you for all of those. Great to read. I do always reply. So if you do want to reach out to me, you can do on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want any more content, please do check out my other show, Defiance. That is available at defiance.news. You can also check out my two films, and I've got another one coming out in the next few days once I get over the sickness. Now, listen, I hope you're all okay. Have a great weekend. Stay healthy out there, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Good morning, Jeremy. How are you? Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me. No problem. Nice to finally connect. Um, it's been a long time. I'm surprised we haven't actually spoken yet. It's kind of strange, really, but I'm glad we're finally connecting now. Nice of uh, yeah. nice of your team to reach out. So, how are you? Um, strange times at the moment. I don't. I don't even know where you're based, so I don't really know where your lockdown is. But strange times. Yeah, it is definitely strange times. I'm. I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing well. My family's doing well, and. Um, yeah, well, I'm I'm based in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. So uh, that's where I'm camped out uh, right now. Right. Big fan of Boston. I've, I've been a few times in the last year. Really, really like oh, yeah. it. I think it's it's because it has that British feel to it. Right. It's New England after all. Yeah. And also the owners of the Red Sox own my uh, football team, Liverpool. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, John Henry, John Henry. All right, well, listen, yeah. look, great to connect. Um, you uh, you mentioned in an email to me, you said, I've got big things on my mind. So I think a good starting question is, what are these big things on your mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, for, for anyone right now, obviously, you know, I think people and, and myself very much included are trying to get, you know, one's head wrapped around the global crisis that we're in and what the implications of that are. Um, I think, you know, concretely within, you know, within our own communities or our own workplaces, but then obviously very much also at a global macro level. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, about that. I think uh, one of the things that I know animated me getting into crypto and this whole, you know, this whole innovation, and I think for a lot of other people, was the belief that we needed a new kind of global economic system, a new, if you will, uh, infrastructure for society that could be more more resilient. And that that's animated the work that that we've done. And I think, you know, you see a lot of this commentary that's out there is sort of you know, Bitcoin was made for this moment kind of stuff. And but I think more generally this environment globally is going to decrease trust. It is going to um, make uh, increased risk and it's going to do that in a wide array of economic interactions. And it's, it's also going to obviously very deeply challenge the monetary system that we have. It already is the monetary system we had already was challenged. It's going to be severely challenged in many, many parts of the world. And so this is from a, from a global macro perspective, this is a really profound moment to conceptualize a better world. And 
to build towards that. And you see these, these kinds of themes already emerging, not just with the focus on things like crypto, but more generally, like what's going to change in the world? Is, is this global pandemic going to accelerate our move towards digitization more broadly? Is it going to accelerate the way that learning happens? Is it going to accelerate, you know, lots of different things like that. And I, and I think certainly within, within my little you know, tunnel vision focus in, in the financial system, it, it should have profound implications. So that's a that's at a very high level some of the things that I'm I'm thinking about right now. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So before we dive into that, I think it would be helpful if you explain to people a bit about who Circle are, but also where Circle is now as a as a business, because it's changed a lot over the last few years. So yeah. can you just give us an update on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of quick update, um, we started Circle uh, about seven years ago. So we're about seven years old. And the the concept that animated the founding of the company was a belief that digital currency on the public internet, so kind of a public network digital currency models would make you know the movement of value, things like payments, a ubiquitous free service on the internet, the same way that data exchange and content are, are that today. And our focus was not necessarily on, you know, everyone in the world's going to move to a new reserve currency called Bitcoin. It was much more on what we thought of as a hybrid model where you had these non-sovereign commodity monies and infrastructure that they provided, and you could in a sense, um, what we now call tokenized, but you could essentially take di- dollars or euros or pounds or any other sort of, say, trade or reserve currency, and you could um, tunnel it uh, over these public blockchain networks. So we, the, the, that was what we were excited about. We were excited about, back then, ideas like programmable money, um, the idea that you could write contracts and code that were enforced by machines instead of courts. And... So the things that got us into this, that's why we started the company. And, and the very first set of things that we built were a payment system, a free payment system built on the Bitcoin network that could transfer pounds and dollars and euros instantly in and out of Bitcoin um, using Bitcoin as kind of the network or the rails. And that um, that ran into a lot of the limitations that Bitcoin um, has or had at least uh, back in, say, 2016. So it really wasn't well suited to being a, a scalable, cost-effective public settlement infrastructure. So we we made a decision to rebuild the protocols. We think of them as protocols for that kind of digital currency payment model on top of Ethereum, which we can come back to USDC in a little bit because that was sort of what grew out of that. But at a high level from a business perspective, we started with this free service we, we, from that, stumbled into a, a very significant trading business um, because we, we had become one of the largest liquidity providers for Bitcoin in the world. And um, that was a significant business for a couple of years as the, as the market both got more efficient and the exchange environment got you know, uh, more liquidity to it. That kind of large block trading was not as good of a business. So we actually sold that business recently to Kraken. Um, and you know, during the big waves of um, growth in the in the digital asset or crypto trading world, 
uh, we grew very rapidly. We we acquired an exchange. We ultimately then sold that exchange, Poloniex, last year. And um, but I think the the sort of thread that's run through all this is, you know, in late 2018, we formed a new consortium called the Center Consortium, which defines a standard for, you know, uh, sort of stable coins uh, and protocols for stable coins and a whole it's a whole framework for it. We launched that with Coinbase, and the first stable coin on that consortium standard USDC grew quite fast. And then mid last year, we we basically said, okay, we can see now within the next year or two using this as a as a like a, a, a key infrastructure for actual mainstream payments and commerce like that's finally arriving that's been what has inspired us for a very long time and so we started working on and building out a, a broad suite of services we call them circle platform services that basically provide the equivalent of like a, a, a business bank account for businesses anywhere in the world that is digital currency native and then platform services, so uh, a broad suite of APIs to build on that kind of digital currency banking infrastructure. And it allows any kind of business to integrate from the existing, what I call, electronic money system into the digital currency native electronic money system and build apps and program it and integrate it with public chain infrastructure. And um, that's uh, that's rolling out right now. Um, and we're very, very excited about it. So we're now, um, that's, that's, that's where the business is and, and USDC is sort of the tip of the spear or kind of foundation of that. And that's just in the last month grown 60% in, in USDC in circulation. It's, we're seeing surging growth and adoption in that. And there's a lot of macro related things on that too. Okay. That's, it's a really interesting area, the stable coins for me, because it does challenge some of my own thoughts with regards to blockchains. I'm Bitcoin focused, entirely focused on Bitcoin with my show, and I only own Bitcoin. I just don't take any interesting, any form of token. I get some brave donations every month, which is quite funny because I instantly convert them to Bitcoin. But it just I don't even know where they come from. I just got an email telling me they come each month. But I'm not really interested in tokens, but... I am interested in stablecoins for a number of reasons, but I, I think they they facilitate uh, the buy and the sell of Bitcoin easier, and also I think the movement of dollars and native sovereign currencies in a digital form, the moving of that around uh, the world is, is a very useful thing. And so this is where it challenges me because it's trying to understand where these could exist on a blockchain. I know Tether ran into some difficulties on Omni. Has that now moved to Ethereum? Yeah, I think most of the transactions are now on Ethereum. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not I'm not a fan of Ethereum. I'm not a fan of all the projects that spun up and all the ICOs, but I, I can understand how why a stablecoin would build on Ethereum. I, I have questions long-term about the viability of Ethereum, but I, I assume you have some of those yourself. So I, I think the, the stablecoin area is a really interesting area to unpack. I'm guessing when you were considering USDC, you had to look at a number of blockchains. Did you have to consider your own one? What was the, the journey you went through to mm-hmm. you came to Ethereum? Well, the... The way that I, I look at this is there's sort of some first principles. So one first principle is, you, you, know, you know, first of all, just 
you know, for, for the for the goal of the application, in this case, a digital dollar, you know, just it technically has to be feasible. It actually has to work. So you, you need, you know, in the case of, of uh, you know, USDC, you know, you need a, a public chain that's secure, that has, uh, you know, the, the underlying, you know, code execution capability that has the underlying, you know, uh, object model primitives that allow you to express your protocol or your app. Um, and so, um, you know, in late 2016, when we started to look at this and then start developing in 2017, really the, the only public chain that could kind of meet those criteria was, was Ethereum. The, so that's just sort of first principle. Does it work? You know, can you actually build it? Um, I think this, the second um, first principle is, is really around interoperability. And, you know, I, as a, uh, as a technologist, you know, I've worked in internet software platforms since the early nineties and sort of have, have, you know, at the kind of browser as operating system, uh, server operating systems, mobile operating systems, web standards, all of these sort of fundamental platforms that, you know, society at large has built on. You, you really want there to be widely adopted standards and you you want there to be um, you know interoperability and you know each of these these sort of public network projects are, are almost like operating systems. So so I, I look at something like Ethereum as a as a new operating system layer on the internet. I think there we're in the early stages of competition in the development of this new class of operating system. And you know the, the internet itself uh, is this, you know, decentralized network, this collection of, of peer-to-peer protocols, uh, that allow for a lot of different things we need, um, to do things like safely transact with each other or enter into contracts with each other or reliably, uh, uh, record votes, uh, for things that happen in the world, you know, all of those things require this a new kind of um, compute and transaction and data layer on the internet. Um, so that's a it's a it's a very important kind of next layer operating system problem. And I think one of the things that was attractive about Ethereum is not only did it work, but I think it it was trying to solve uh, that that kind of problem. Obviously, as a technologist, I understood the severe limitations of the first generation of that technology. Um, however, you, you want something that, you know, when we thought about introducing USDC, you, know, you want to be able to bootstrap it. You want to be able to bootstrap it in a way where it functions, the interoperability benefits are there. And, you know, with that, um, you know, having many, many other developers who are also building on those standards creates interoperability and composability among a lot of different things. And so that's been really powerful. And if you look at the growth and adoption of USDC in particular, and some other projects too, the composability of smart contracts has really enabled some amazing things. You're, you're, you know, you're seeing decentralized finance applications. There's internet-based credit markets that exist now that uh, that are there. I mean, there's there's just really significant breakthroughs that are happening there. So that's that's sort of the kind of ha- ha- why why one would build on that. And I think to your comment earlier, I am I am not a maximalist uh, 
on on much of anything. Uh, I call myself an internet maximalist. So I think there are certain kind of uh, I, I believe in you know broadly adopted open technologies, open protocols, open standards, and their wide applicability in a lot of domains. And and I and I believe in that in this area of you know, trustless transactions, trustless money, trustless you know compute these kinds of problems that are being solved. Um, so I, I believe in all that, but we're, we're still in the early days. So um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the conceptualization of USDC and center consortium, which governs it um, is very clear <coughs> that it will be a multi-chain model because, you know, it's sort of like if I'm Spotify, I don't just want Spotify to run on iOS. I want it to run on Android and on a web browser and on windows. And, you know, I'm going to be cross-platform and because there's going to be a lot of different runtime environments. And if you have a digital dollar or a digital Euro, you want it to be cross-platform. You don't want to be tied to, to, to one, one platform. So there's going to be competition in these operating systems. There's going to be multiple platforms. And, and we want to make sure that, you know, that, that businesses and people and households that use this can, can use it you know, widely. Okay. So I'll tell you another reason why these digital dollars are interesting for me at the moment. And then there's a few questions we can unpack. So I did an interview a few days ago with Rao Pal, the Real Vision guy. And one of the things I said to him is, how do you financially plan? What are the things you would do in a time like this? And he had kind of like a four-point plan, which was hold cash and also physical cash, not just in your bank, which sparked interest. He said, hold scarce assets like Bitcoin and gold. Um, And the other things were like cut your spend and hustle. And I was thinking about my own personal planning through this crazy period. Obviously, I'm a Bitcoiner, so I hold Bitcoin. I don't have any gold, and I think it might be prudent just to have a little bit. I do have exposure to the pound, but I don't have any exposure to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And the dollar will be one of the strongest currencies through this crisis. If if we see currencies fail, and I had to bet on a failure rate, I would put the dollar at last. Yeah. So, uh, so I was part thinking perhaps it might be sensible and prudent to hold some dollars. Now, I'm not going to go down to the bank and exchange some. That's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't hold dollars in my UK bank account. One of the easiest things for me to do is just to go out and buy a digital dollar. Mm-hmm. Just go, say it was ten, fifteen thousand dollars yeah. That might be a prudent thing to do. Yeah. I'm assuming I could keep it on a, on a hardware wallet. So it's quite an easy thing to do. So I am definitely interested in that. But that does give me lead me to some questions for someone like you in terms of that is wanting to understand really the trade-offs I'm making. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the good trade-offs I think I'm making, and I think it re- it goes back to Rao's point about hold cash and physical cash, we all know that our money within our banks is fractionally held. Exactly. But but with a stable coin, it is essentially fully backed. Yeah. Essentially, USDC is fully backed. I know there's been some questions around Tether, whether that is now fully backed, but it is, you, you're yeah. essentially saying it's fully backed. We have to trust that, but can you talk to me talk to me about that? Is USDC is fully backed, but how how do I know I can trust that? Yeah, so this these are great questions, and there's a lot we can unpack there, which which I'd love mm-hmm. to talk about. So I think um, you know I, I come at this from a couple of different angles. So the first is just that you know digital dollars like a USDC is just from a from a, a a user perspective, it is a it is a form of digital cash. So 
it, you're, you're right. It is not like uh, commercial bank money. It is like it is like digital cash, meaning it carries the same bearer instrument properties that a Bitcoin would carry. That that digital cash token, uh, you can self custody. You can put it on a hardware wallet. Uh, you, you know, you you have all those attributes, and it's you know, like I say, you know, the fundamental utility value of of a of a, of a digital dollar is it is imbued with all these characteristics of the internet. You can transact to any counterparty without counterparty risk to anyone with an internet connected device in the world. You can settle the transaction with finality in three minutes or less for like two cents. So that's like super good, super powerful, both the self-sovereign aspects as well as the economic efficiency aspects. And so it's just inherently really powerful from that perspective. Now, the, the, the issues and, and questions that you raise around, you know, how to think about this, um, both A, compared to existing forms of electronic money dollars, and then B, in the specifics, the, let's just call it the trust architecture of something like USDC, mm-hmm. and, and essentially what is the kind of covenant that you have from the issuer and why should you, you know, trust that, right? Because um, so the, the point is, Jeremy, is that I, I've traveled to the States a lot usually it's every every at least every other month uh, before the travel bans i've got dollars here i've yeah. got probably i think i've got about actually because the last trip was in vegas and i won 500 dollars at the airport i've actually mm. got about six seven hundred dollars here yeah now i trust those dollars yeah sure i know every time i go to the states i can use them yeah but the utility right now is terrible for me i mean to actually get any use i have to go to the bank and I have to yeah yeah sure. i'm never going to do it sure but if i was to hold digital dollars yes. for some kind of rainy day fund yeah i know i can go yeah and exchange it like that for pounds or bitcoin yeah 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 totally so just to, to break it down i mean i i I think there are um, to, to, to the interview that you recently did. I mean, uh, likewise, like I, I hold uh, cash, I hold digital dollars, USDC, and I hold you know basically Bitcoin, and and I do also hold uh, some uh, Ethereum tokens, but mostly Bitcoin and cash and digital dollars. That's sort of my total portfolio, and I think um, at a from a macro perspective, I think. We look at this, and 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 we what we see is very likely on a global basis. You know, other forms of sovereign money are going to be even more deeply challenged than, say, the U.S. sovereign money form. You know, the the amount of of government debt effectively that is going to be issued, as well as the cascading essentially bankruptcies. And failures at both the household level and at the level of the firm in many markets are, are also very likely going to put a, a lot of pressure on commercial bank money, which is fractionally reserved. And so, uh, you know, if you're in Turkey or Brazil or wherever, and you have a, a dollar balance in your you know, bank of Turkey or whatever it is, you know, that's commercial bank money that's fractionally reserved. That's just that's just a higher risk form of money. And then secondly, you 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 also may have concerns about the the sovereign currency because fundamentally that's a, a proxy to the creditworthiness of the sovereign bond issuer, and those are going to get worse and worse and worse. And so there is naturally going to be this you know quote unquote flight to dollars. Um, but then the question is is you know, what are good dollars and what are bad dollars? And how, how do you evaluate a dollar? Because each dollar product is a little bit different. So, 
you know, uh, dollars in a, a, a electronic dollars in a commercial bank are subject to that fractional reserve risk, and and the, and they don't have that the self sovereign cash like attributes that you have with something like a digital currency. Now, I'm I'm kind of getting to the essence of your question, which is when you look at USDC, what's I think very unique and very exciting about it and also speaks to a lot of its growth is, you know, first of all, it's governed by this consortium framework, the center consortium, which has multiple issuers and the tokens are sort of fungible and redeemable across issuers. Today, that circle and Coinbase, uh, in the near future, there are going to be some other very major companies that are going to be issuers and so that fungibility will be there the the second though is the the way it works is and the usdc issuers are required to be regulated financial institutions and specifically regulated financial institutions in the united states under um either money transmission law or trust bank law and so we are that, uh, we're, we're regulated in all relevant US states and under those laws, you know, there are a few things to note. We are, we are examined uh, regularly by banking supervisors and they're examining a lot of different stuff. Um, but in particular, from a legal perspective, there's what are called permissible investment clauses and the permissible investment clauses basically say if you have as a money transmitter if you're holding dollars that are in sort of uh, in support of these payment instruments that you're creating like these usdc tokens there's a very narrow scope of what those can be held in and that defines in, in turn what we call the investment policy for center reserves. So the, the USDC reserves that are governed by the center consortium have an investment policy, which is bound to uh, either, you know, fully liquid, full reserve cash, or the majority is in short-term U.S. government treasuries. And so, first of all, it is full reserve, Second of all, the underlying reserve itself is the most, you know, liquid. Uh, it, it, it essentially is like a proxy to the sovereign credit of, of the U.S. government, right? And getting to your earlier point, you're sort of saying, okay, who are, the, who are the creditors in the world that I'm willing to hold a proxy for? And a USDC is essentially that. Um, it, it is it is uh, this full reserve against uh, against that, and that makes it, in my mind, it gets all it gets all of the efficiency and utility advantages of being a digital currency, and it is it's just safer than a commercial bank dollar. It's safer than the other forms of electronic money dollars, and uh, I, I'm I'm even concerned about that in the United States. I mean, we're talking about um, unemployment levels that could be, you know, 25 or 30 percent. We're talking about 30 to 40 percent of businesses potentially being bankrupt. The household defaults, the corporate defaults. I mean, uh, you know, no matter how you slice it, the balance sheets of of commercial banks are not designed to support that. And so, you know. 
commercial bank dollars may not be they, they certainly are, are you know this is why people say have held cash or, or hard assets but also i think digital digital dollars like usdc avoid that challenge um, because of the nature of what uh, of what they are um, and so that makes it attractive and and i think we've seen that in the last month we've seen a surge in usdc in circulation um, and it continues every week and i think that is um that that underscores it and so there is uh you know for the for the crypto in us um you know this is not a trustless system you're you're basically you're you're trusting the regulatory regime of supervision of of firms like ours mm -hmm. and you know you're also trusting and there's by the way there's public attestations from a top five global accounting firm that are published on center.io every single month that to that examine the full reserve basis and 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 share that so so that's a, a piece of the puzzle but I, I think you're also basically trusting that short-term liquid u.s government treasuries will will be will remain liquid that they will remain instruments of of some value right um but compared to many other sovereign instruments um you know like you said that's sort of the top of the pyramid <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's about it's about having a, a mix to, I, I guess, hedge your various risks. I, I, I mean, even if I was US based, I would be considering the, the dollars in my bank account versus the dollars under my mattress versus digital dollars. I, yeah. I think yeah. I don't think I would put all my money into USDC itself because that itself has certain risks. So there's all different risks. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, one of the other uh, risks. I guess, well, no, before I come to that, uh, so these issuers, how, how many are there? So today there's two. And so just the, the history of this is um, uh, we established Center Consortium in, in late fall 2018. And then in, and then last summer, it actually kind of went live as a network with the governance scheme, the, the, the shared reserve bank model, the multi-issuer model um, that went live, uh, you know, officially last summer. And so it's sort of bilaterally uh, been managed by Circle and Coinbase. There is a you know an independent uh, director as well. Um, a lot of that's changing very fast. So we I think have, have we're very reluctant to just add more issuers, and I think it, it, it speaks to the evolution of, of kind of where we've been and where it's going. I mean the what I call again like the bootstrap use case for this was. Uh, within the crypto trading markets, as you identified earlier, right? It was the, what I call crypto capital markets. It's market infrastructure. It makes it easier, makes it more reliable. It's, you know, it's, it's liquid. You can get in and out of the fiat system with it. It sort of has all these benefits. But where we see this going is, and this gets to the very first question you asked about what am I thinking about is, we think, uh, you know, these programmable digital dollars on public chains are going to rapidly emerge as a, a very reliable payment and settlement medium for a much broader range of, of payments and commerce applications. Like we're betting our entire company on that. And Center Consortium, you know, the, the, the next major members of that consortium are going to be companies who operate at scale in the existing world of payments and commerce. Uh, not crypto exchanges and others. So we're we're going to be going through this this transition from the bootstrap use case, which was sort of the, the digital asset 
markets and into uh, a more mainstream phase, which I, you know, I think is really exciting. Yeah. So just let's just do another couple of the, the questions on the trust model, just because this is important for me. So there's a couple of other things I would also be thinking about. One of them, we've talked about platforms. There's obviously a platform risk. If there was a catastrophic failure of Ethereum or Ethereum was to ever die, what happens to my USDC dollars in a situation such as that? Yeah, you know, I mean, um, I think, and we certainly thought about those things. There, the first is uh, the full reserve basis is a really, really important thing, which is that you know, the the if the, if all of the tokens were destroyed, let's just say, like poof, they were all destroyed, uh, which would be obviously catastrophic. The reserves are still there; mm-hmm. like those exist. Um, and so that's yeah. So I, I expected that. How do you attach the yeah. claim? So, to that, so the, that dollar? the the this this gets to the nature of the instrument. The instrument is digital cash. Like, um, it is mm-hmm. not like a. It's not like an account at a bank. It is. It is more like I'm holding this digital cash. And so, in order to redeem, you need to be able to present your the, the the credentials that you possess that token, which is obviously you're able to from a wallet sign a message, broadcast it to the chain, and prove the ownership of that, you know, the tokens in that address, and then they move to our address and then we say, okay, now we have them. Give us your information, your identity and your bank account, and we'll give you dollars. Right. So that's okay. that's sort of the flow. Now in a in a kind of catastrophic thing with Ethereum, you you have to assume that you still have uh, the blockchain, the history, right up to that point where there's that catastrophic event. So you still have, and that's just public key cryptography, right? So you, you still mm-hmm. have the, the addresses, the proofs, etc. There are things in the center network and, and, and there are, there, there are um, capabilities in the center network infrastructure of USDC itself. They're essentially to deal with emergencies. Um, so the if, if if for example there was an event occurring which raised alert levels to a fifty one percent attack, let's just use that. We can uh, through you know decisions made by the center governance body pause USDC. We can just pause it and say we're going to wait until dust is settled on this fifty one percent attack. Or, or, or things like that. Now, of course, we've never needed to, to do that, but the, the, the network has been designed with um, you know, fundamental security breaches of the underlying network in mind, specific you know, potential security breaches that would happen in attacks, say, on the USDC token itself, um, and then also uh, you know, protocols around um, attacks on issuers. So th- there are there's a whole okay. series of things like that that are in place. And those will just need to continue to be hardened. And actually, you, you know, I, I this is a space that w- will, will receive more regulation going forward um, as central banks uh, and treasury departments in countries start to better understand how, how digital currency versions of their central bank money function, they will very likely introduce rules, I think, within the next two years that say, if you're a financial intermediary that's issuing these digital currency tokens for our money, 
there's a whole set of security and operational considerations that have to be you know audited and proven yeah yeah so i i fully expect all those things and it's not like i wouldn't even be comparing this to bitcoin because i think the goals of bitcoin are entirely different yes and i think essentially what you're doing here is you're trying to just make a better dollar you're trying to make oh. a more efficient dollar that's that's better for the digital age uh, a few few other things in there just to think about so one of the other trade-offs i would be thinking about is um what is the reality of the ability to track the use of this digital dollar uh, i don't know if you are currently being tracked by someone like chain analysis i just had johnny levin on i gave him a very hard time actually i don't know your considerations for that but how much of this can be tracked is there a reality that look these are digital dollars that offer you some benefits but one of the trade-offs is that you can be tracked your certain dollars can be blacklisted and is that a reality of this situation because of the laws or is it in some or do i still have a lot of freedom with it yeah i mean it's a it's a great question and and there's a few key pieces here so the the first coming back to first principles is you know the, the way that we look at these you know digital dollars and digital currencies like this is that they're they're designed to be like digital cash and and so that's that's important we think it's important to their utility uh we think that's important to their 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 value globally um and the the architecture of you know public chains digital wallets security privacy all those things it inherits all those things which are really really critical and we think um you know are kind of again kind of first principles i think um the you know, let's just call like the, the legal and compliance layer that interacts with this is actually very similar to the legal and compliance layer that interacts with intermediaries involved in Bitcoin. So it's, it's in fact identical. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're in the United States or if you're in the UK or wherever and you're an exchanger of, you know, fiat to Bitcoin, you've got a whole set of KYC AML requirements you need to do. You have a set of reporting requirements. If you, uh, if you as a financial intermediary with a customer who's on your platform, if, if that customer is generating suspicious behavior, you are obligated to report that to law enforcement. Like that's, that is the, that is what, it, that is the set of rules that exist pretty much everywhere um, with some exceptions. And and so that's that's sort of the, the 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 base piece there. I think the you know USDC it's an ERC twenty token. Um, there may be other chain implementations as well where the the chains have other you know attributes to them around privacy and security. But but right now USDC is a ERC twenty token and and blockchain analytics you know products you know support you know tracing of address address movement and things like that for that. Um, and so that exists to the degree that, that uh, financial institutions or law enforcement are using those tools. Yeah, I, I guess there is there is a slight difference, and it is, this isn't any form of gotcha. It's actually me weighing up the different coins that I want for different purposes in life. And yeah. the, the, the difference, I guess, with Bitcoin is that I can use it a bit more anonymously if I've if I'm well prepared, mm-hmm. or I can use coin joins, mm-hmm. uh, or, or I can buy Bitcoin. Uh, in person from somebody and hold it on a wallet and then use it for certain transactions. Yeah. I know with 
I know with USDC, it's going to be a, I'm going to hold it more like the dollar as an asset right now, rather than as, as, as something I'll be spending. But I don't have the option to, I can't coin join USDC. Mm. My well, so, is I mean, all, I, I, I all think the money's attached to me. There, there, the, the, there's tremendous amount of work in privacy models for Ethereum uh, applications, data, and transactions, and tokens, right? There's, there's a, an enormous amount. Ethereum supports zero-knowledge proofs. Um, there are a wide range of implementations around that on Ethereum. So there, there are, I think, um, in fact, more robust privacy solutions on Ethereum than there are on Bitcoin today. And, and there are, you know, you know, lots of folks, you know, building that. I think um, the, and, and, you know, what's interesting is that uh, if, you, if you look at and think about, um, you know, digital dollars being used in everyday business, businesses, they don't want to have their transaction flows be audible by the public. I mean, you know, that's a, like, do I want to see, do, should I, if someone figures out I'm whatever, you know, uh, Tesco, how much money I'm getting paid or how much money I'm sending out, like that's none of anyone's business. And yeah, so course, yeah. I, th- th- I think there's, um, you know, for example, there's a, a, a project that's from Ernst & Young. Um, I think it's called Nightfall, which is a, it's a, it's a very robust uh, zero-knowledge proof-based privacy layer for Ethereum transactions that is designed for businesses. Like if you're going to be using this stuff, like I don't want my competitors, I don't want my suppliers, I don't want anyone to know what money is moving around for me. And so as we know, like privacy is fundamental to money at both the household level and at the level of the firm. And so the technologies are, 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 are really improving on that. I think you still will face everywhere in the world this, 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 uh, this role of these regulated intermediaries that have these record keeping obligations and have, you know, a whole set of obligations that's not changing. Um, and, and that's being adapted to digital currency. So the financial action task force, which is the 170 countries that set standards for anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing, um, have standards now that are in place for digital asset companies, virtual asset service providers, as they're called, or VASPs. And those rules are going into effect this October. And what that will mean is that when you're using an exchange or a custodial wallet, or you're, you know, you're using a service that is moving digital dollars or whatever it is, that you're going to be presented with things like, you know, who are you sending the money to? What's it for? You're going to, you're going to have that kind of stuff. And that is just going to get rolled out. And the, you know, countries that do not enforce that on firms in their jurisdictions will be at risk of, of, of being designated as higher risk jurisdictions under FATF, which means that their people and their firms will have less access to the financial system. So, I mean, that's sort of how the game is played uh, mm. on that. And that's, that, is, that is sort of happening. Next up, I talked to Jeremy Moore about USDC and the role of stable coins. But before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. So firstly, let's talk about Kraken. They put the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. And in these strange times where governments are printing unprecedented amounts of money, many are considering Bitcoin as an insurance, as a hedge against this. So if that is you, if you're considering it, there is no better place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin than Kraken. 
And at Kraken.com, it couldn't be easier to sign up. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app, so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their world-class security, they are the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. They will support you. They've got 24-7, 365 customer support, and they'll help you with any issues, whoever you are, wherever you are. There is no better place to buy Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And also, let's talk about BlockFi, my longest ever sponsor, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And if you haven't checked out my recent show with Zach and Flory, the co-founders of BlockFi, do go and check it out. They talk a lot about how they manage risk during this unprecedented market collapse and how they rode through it all. It's a really interesting show, very helpful. So yeah, go and check that out. Um, yeah, they've been crushing it. They just raised another $30 million to keep growing the business. They have two really, really cool products on the market right now. They have their interest accounts, which allows you to put your crypto to work and earn monthly interest payments with your Bitcoin. They also have their crypto back loans, which allow you to access liquidity without selling. By using your crypto as collateral, you can unlock up to 50% of the value of your assets in USD. If you are interested in finding more, please do your own research and head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. I guess the last trade-off I would be thinking about is immutability, because with my bank pounds, I think in the UK I'm assured up to at least 80,000, but there is that kind of level of protection. The, the bank is often checking my payments to... Uh, if I make a significant purchase, I'll get a text message asking to confirm it because they want to, you know, they want to check and see that mm-hmm. it is actually me. Say I was buying a TV or something, and also if my card is stolen and somebody uses it, my I, yeah. I, all the money comes back to me. Reversibility in this and world, fraud and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, but within this world, this is a trade-off I have to accept: is that there is a mutability here. If I make a mistake sending the dollars or they're yeah. stolen, they're lo- they're lost. I can't. There's no. That's there's right. no Reversibility. That's right. There's they're 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 digital cash, right? And and um, so there is no reversibility, and transactions are final in in, in minutes. Um, and uh, and so for with respect to conducting transactions where you're you you have worries about counterparty risk or settlement finality or speed to settlement or those things, it's actually you know it's a it's a huge advantage now. Um, there's these other places where it's not as much. Now, what I think you're going to see happen is you will you will very likely see things like USDC, you know, supported within you know payments platforms where the payments platform itself provides the those those things as like a service in the same way that banks provide you know chargeback protection which is a form of insurance that's built into the fee structure of the transactions on cards. And so, uh, you know, there, there, there are ways to price insurance for digital dollar transactions and, and, and there, and there will be intermediaries that say, okay, if you, if you're transacting through our, our wallets or, or through our commerce environment, or whatever it is, you can have insurance on those transactions but there's a cost to the insurance. Someone's got to bear the cost of that insurance. That is what all this stuff is within banks. There's, there's costs. Um, and so who's paying the insurance and, um, you know, and how much profit margin is there on it? Um, but uh, essentially, it's, it is certainly not impossible to have insurance on digital cash. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm almost certainly going to to buy some. And actually, one of the interesting things is one of my lead sponsors is BlockFi, who you probably know. You're a, yeah. you're a BlockFi currency. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's, one it's of the interesting things. I think um, you can get USDC on Kraken with pounds. Yeah. Um, you can get, I think, uh, yeah, so that's definitely an exchange with pounds and, and euros and USDC as well. And you can go uh, you can go straight to circle usdc.circle.com slash start and you can uh, you know you can connect a UK bank account and transfer funds and and just get USDC straight from from circle that way well the interesting thing there is because I'm I'm almost certainly going to hold some USDC well let's say I'm gonna hold a, a dollar stable coin and, and I've been thinking about which one to hold but one of the interesting things is, is, say, for example, with my bank account, I have an amount of money in there, which is a float that I never go below. And yeah. Let's just say for the sake of this conversation, it was $30,000. Okay. Right. One of the things I'd been thinking about is that I could hold that $30,000 in USDC on BlockFi, and rather than earning the pithy close to zero interest yeah. I do with my bank account, right. I think theirs is like 8.6% yeah. on yeah. digital dollars. So it can actually the money can actually work for me better. And I had the conversation with uh, Zach the other day in terms of the, their business, but my assumption is that in the future, certainly I can't put a full-time scale on it, but this actually, the lending and moving of yes. digital dollars in the environment which BlockFi is going to do will probably end up being a bigger part of their business than Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I deal with every one of these companies, so all of the, both the, the centralized, uh, uh, essentially credit and lending services and the decentralized ones, they all use USDC it's, uh, as, a, as a sort of full reserve fiat collateralized uh, stablecoin. It's got like 99% market share on these platforms. So it's very, very popular. And I think, mm. um, and we're seeing that grow uh, a lot. Um, I think the, the, the really exciting part of this, in my view, is you know, these uh, permissionless uh, smart contract based credit markets. So compound uh, DYDX, but let's just say com compound in particular, you know, it's a credit market that is, there, there's no company. It exists just in code. You can, it's, it's transparent and audible. You can supply credit to it and borrowers can borrow at rates that the market sets. It, you're collateralizing your own borrowing. It has a it has native you know kind of collateral call models. So it is a functioning credit market, and there's yields. And um, Compound Protocol has done a really innovative thing, which is they've created something called CUSDC. And basically, if you think about like a bank, you know one of the popular bank products is a certificate of deposit. Where you know you you sort of say okay I'll give you I'll give you my pounds for ninety days and you'll give me this interest rate or I'll, I'll give you my pounds for one hundred and eighty days and you'll give me this, this interest rate. CUSDC is is very similar. So basically, you can time lock your USDC, and you and and the market the decentralized market. There's not a bank sitting there with a bunch of risk guys going how are we going to price this. The market prices it, and you get a yield. Um, and it's really, really powerful. And so from my perspective, you know, the more that you have these digital dollars in circulation, then people in any market around the world, any country in the world can say, oh, I need, I'm, I have some extra, I'm willing to supply it as, as I'm going to lend to the market. And I am someone who needs, I'm going to borrow 
from the market and you know, you, you have software you know software that's enforcing those contracts that's like a breakthrough that's never been possible and that's the stuff that's the that's really exciting stuff and so i and, and back to your own personal use case of hey if you're going to hold this why not put it to work the only comment I would make on that, and 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 I have you know uh, my own views for my own money with respect to that, is the borrowers on these platforms today, which is where the yield is coming from. The the reason the yield is say high, is the borrowers are gamblers. They're all crypto traders. So your 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 counterparty, if you're lending to them, which is to say you're putting your USDC with them is the crypto trading market and it is gamblers and it is, you know, there is tail risk there. So there, there can be black swan events in the crypto trading markets. Now it's over collateralized borrowing, but these are new, these are new products. These are new markets, they're new services. And so I think, um, you know, you need to risk adjust your, uh, how you think about uh, your allocation in that, in that light. It's funny, I put those questions to Zach this week. I actually did an interview with him and Floria a couple of days ago because that's one of the main criticisms that people have had against their business. How do they survive a, uh, a severe market crash, a black swan event? We ha- we've had it. We've been through it. Yeah. I don't think we could have been through a more disastrous uh, market, uh, a volatile market and market situation as we have recently, and they've rode through it. Yeah. I think they also have very good policies in terms of who they lend to. But I, yeah. I, the way I see their business is that it starts in the crypto and then it uses crypto to expand outside Absolutely. of crypto. Absolutely. So the, the people borrowing Bitcoin and Ethereum most certainly are market makers or yeah. or traders of some kind. Yeah. But I th- I'm assuming their, their USDC or their stable coins is hopefully going to be taking them out into other markets. Into, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly the markets. hope. And I, I mean, just like we're seeing USDC. Move. I don't think they'll get 8.6% with that, by the no, way. No, no. I mean, the, mar- the market will price that. And if actually, if you look at the DeFi markets, which are the, you know, decentralized, like the those yields on USDC have come down a lot. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but I, I think the, um, the important thing is, is, uh, you know, I think these internet-based, um, you know, effectively like internet-based lending markets, whether they're centralized or decentralized that utilize stable coins are, are growing, they're going to grow bigger. Um, and that's an opportunity for people everywhere. So what are the criticisms that you do get that I haven't raised? Are there any like tough criticisms or fair criticisms of these stable coins? I mean, I know. I mean, I know a lot of what of the more kind of hardcore Bitcoin maximalists will say that is that this is this is the currency we're trying to get away from. We yeah. want to get to hyper Bitcoinization, and fine. I, I still, I'm not. I, I'm fully convinced by Bitcoin. I'm not. I'm not sure how that actually plays out, and if it ever does. But while it doesn't, we still have a need to use fiat currencies. I have a, a day-to-day need to use right. them. I cannot survive entirely right. on Bitcoin, so I'm more than happy to use it. But uh, and I, I expect one of the other main criticisms is that it, there is still the ability for companies like Chain Analysis to track this, and so they're, they, they're not, I guess, so much criticisms of you. That's just the reality of the the ballpark we're playing in. But is there anything that I've not raised that you think is worth evaluating? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. Maybe one just a comment on what you what you said, and then and then one issue that um, is a question that we get, and and I can share. Uh, 
that that's a tough question, if you will, and, and, and I'll share my response to it. So the first is just, you know, I, I think that the the general kind of criticism of, you know, hey, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is sovereign money. This is, look at what's happening in the world. Look at the amount of, of you know, uh, quantitative easing and this giant debt injections and money machine go burr, blah, 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 right? We, we know that. And so I am with you, like, I am the, the, the bull case and the long conviction on Bitcoin is greater than ever. And it's why it's such a big part of my portfolio as well. But I think, um, and, and, and I do expect to see more demand grow at an organic level and potentially more demand grow in an everyday use level over the coming years. But uh, we, you're absolutely right. And I believe very deeply that, um, you know, we, vast parts of the world are going to continue to denominate uh, transactions and have the need for dollar-based and, and potentially a, a small number of other reserve currencies as mediums of exchange and as unit of account and, and even as a store of value with, with varying degrees of creditworthiness behind those, uh, so to speak. But, um, but they're, they're, that, will, that will be there. And that correlates to the growing capability of public blockchain infrastructure to support really robust forms of commerce applications and to actually lower the cost of transacting in the world and make it safer to transact and, and more automated. So there's a lot of benefits to it. And, that, and those are not arguments against Bitcoin. They're just, they're, they're sort of these two domains. And I've, I've always had the view that and, I, and I've, I've seen many other credible, um, you know, participants sort of talk about the, you know, the, the arc of non-sovereign money becoming a reserve currency that is then stable enough that it can be used safely by everyone. You know, I, I actually think that the, in the past, I had thought that that's, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 10 or 20 year kind of arc. Maybe that's going to come in some because of of what's happening in the world today. That'll be interesting to watch. But in the meantime, there's this other thing that's happening. And then just to answer the question of is there is there a hard question? Um, there is one, and I, you, you touched on it earlier, but I, I didn't get a chance to answer, which is the the this this potential for a wallet address to be blacklisted. Um, yeah, I was going to come back to that. Yeah, so there is um, there is a um, a blacklist function on the USDC smart contract. It has never been used, and we are actually imminently going to be publishing the 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 latest board approved blacklisting policy, so everybody can see exactly what that is. And the policy really focuses on two things. One is if there were uh, some event that put the security or uh, that put the security of the network of, of USDC at risk, then that would be a cause for being able to use a, 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 a blacklist function. That's one scenario. And I won't get into the, the details of what that could be for security reasons, but say there was some you know, concern that uh, that could be an example um, like I gave earlier as well. And then the second is if a if there is a, a a binding final court order from a competent court in a U.S. jurisdiction that 
that is a, a, a final court, a final deemed court order to freeze an address, then the, the center board would have to make a decision um, and then choose to blacklist an address. And that, I'm that, assuming that's the same with a bank account as well. It's very similar, but the bar is a lot um, is a lot uh, higher. This, these are not these are not accounts. You know, I, I think um, it's just the bar the bar is higher on, on this. See, the reality of all these questions is just weighing up the trade offs that come with this and uh, i mean i have no uh, we're gonna to use the funds yeah. for anything we're gonna also and and when we publish this policy we're, we're going to be um also you know we will publicly share you know sort of when there's been a blacklist and we'll we'll share publicly share what that blacklist address is as well so mm-hmm. so this isn't going to be uh, kind of behind the curtain there's this stuff going on no one knows about etc we view this as something that would have to be really severe with with uh, you know, not just any jurisdiction, but a, a, a competent U.S. court jurisdiction in, in the U.S. jurisdiction that is enforcing this, and and we're not going to kind of go you know hide. Um, so that we're we're trying to be clear about how we look at this, the severity, and and how the the governance framework that we have is going to be uh, handling that. Okay, as I was saying, this all these things are just about trade-offs, yeah, risks, and what I'm willing to hold. I know. That if I want to hold any physical cash, there is a risk of it lo- losing it if my house burns down or yeah. my house gets burgled. And if yeah. I hold it in the bank, I, I know I can't uh, use it for illicit purposes. And there is a risk of it being seized by the government in extreme mm-hmm. circumstances. And so there are trade-offs with all of this. And I'm not gonna, sure. I'm not trying to anyway demon demonize this. It's just yeah, yeah. balancing the trade-offs. And I, I, I think if I was US-based, I think I would potentially consider having. Ten to twenty percent, maybe of my my dollars in in something like a digital dollar. I actually just checked. Uh, I actually have some USDC. I did. I have a hundred and six of them nice. um, that came through uh, as a as a interesting on BlockFi. But uh, th- these are the trade offs, and I, I'm trying to understand it. An interesting side point. I've also during the interview that came to my mind. I'm not sure if you're aware. I went out to Venezuela recently. Um, I went out to make a, a film and see what's going on with Bitcoin there. And I came back with this conclusion that um, it's not the opportunity people think it is. Now, there is a definite couple of use cases. If you're middle class, upper class, there is a real use case to hold Bitcoin and every month, uh, sorry, every week avoid your 10% inflation and just get your bolivars as you need it. That is a definite use case. And there's also a definite use case for remittance for people who just can't get bank accounts. Mm-hmm. But in visiting the slums and meeting some of the poorest people, there is no use case. There is no culture of saving. And you've got yeah. people living on five, $5 a month. It's, it's completely no no use. But people do want dollars. Yeah. But one of the main problems with the dollars is that if you're living on $5 a month, you're buying things that cost less than a dollar. Yeah. So, but you can't get your change in uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. currencies. It's all dollar notes. Yeah, yeah. I'm imagining uh, in somewhere like Venezuela, a digital dollar is a lot more useful because it's fast and easy to spend. Yes, and also, you you actually have multiple decimal places to work. Yeah, with. yeah, yeah. So yeah, actually, totally. 
it's it's weird, and I feel like I, I I will get a slap from the Bitcoin gods for saying this, but there's there is a more of a purpose for day to day survival and and ease of use for a digital US dollar for these poorest people yeah. in Venezuela than there is for Bitcoin. Now, I would hope long term that Bitcoin could grow in Venezuela and it can yeah. do all the things: separate money and state, and uh, 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 definance someone like Maduro from all his evil yeah. acts. But just practical real short-term right. solution right i know if i went to the slum and tried to sell somebody the the concept of bitcoin with its price volatility and transaction costs and a right. digital dollar right it's the digital dollar will be an easier sell yeah no i well we we see that um so w at circle a big theme for us is dollarization <laughs> and digital a lot of things at the macro level that we've talked about and we absolutely see demand from emerging markets, and um, you know, in, in fact, uh, some some of the uh, partnerships that we're working on right now are very much aimed at uh, empowering Latin Americans with uh, self-custodied mobile digital wallets that are that have seamless, you know, support for for USDC, um, and it's a it's a killer app. It makes so much sense and. I'm excited about it. I think there's going to be a lot that goes on with that. I've always felt that, and maybe it exists, but there would be a very good use case for a, a wallet, one that I would certainly use, which holds both Bitcoin, Lightning Bitcoin, and uh, a yeah. digital dollar, and that I could seamlessly move between the three. Yeah. I've always felt that would be a very useful, especially when I was in El Salvador and I, I was uh, met with a group of uh, kids who are who are um, incentivized to stay out of gangs by doing local work in the community, mm -hmm. and they're paid in Bitcoin, and then they can use that Bitcoin in local stores. But the, the volatility is a slight issue, is a mm -hmm. slight issue for them, and also the transaction costs. Yeah, really, he's trying to teach these people in terms of savings, but almost certainly in that scenario, if that wallet allowed them to say. I don't know, keep 25% in Bitcoin, but the other 75% in a digital dollar because right. they are dollarized in El Salvador right. anyway, right. That, that that would be a very good use. That would be a very good wallet, but I've, I've yes. yet to see that one. Yeah, there, 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 are, uh, there are quite a few projects that are trying to kind of synthesize those kinds of experiences. Civic uh, has a cool wallet project they're working on. There's the, uh, a pretty exciting digital wallet from Argent, which is, I think, a UK-based company as well. Um, there are a lot of different takes on this. I, yeah, I think in the next year, we'll see a lot of progress on, on those with, with the right level of, of usability, but also maintaining the right level of privacy and security as well. All right. Well, listen, we've done uh, we've done an hour and six minutes, and that was my first section. My first section was just an update on how you're doing in the uh, uh, digital dollars. Let's let's close out just by talking a little bit now about the situation we're in. Uh, it'd be good to just get your perspective on what's happening with the injection of money into the markets, the potential failure rate of businesses. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for you to have a, like a broad answer because there's a lot of people questioning why are loans being issued to companies that are, are failing, essentially zombie businesses. I especially look at something like the airlines, like obviously it's tragic what they've been through. But even when we come out of lockdowns, I, I, my assumption there's still going to be a lot of nervousness about traveling still. Mm -hmm. We know it's through the airports and, and, and the planes that this traveled around the world. I certainly, if I didn't, unless I, I've confirmed I have the antibody, I would be very nervous getting on a plane these days. So these, these companies, 
potentially won't come back to the level they were before. So I'm almost, I'm myself questioning the, the loans that are being issued to these businesses. And I'm also just questioning a lot of things personally about what life is going to be like when we come out of it. I almost... I, I, I almost feel there's like a, a pre-coronavirus world and a post-coronavirus yes. world and it we, the world will have shifted and yeah. won't return. There will, I think Balaji's been saying it. There's going to be a new normal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's um, <clears throat> there's a lot to talk about, obviously. I, I think mm. um, m- maybe the first concept to be grounded in is um, the, you know, there's the pre-coronavirus world, there's the during the coronavirus world, and then there's the after coronavirus world. The during the coronavirus world is really the next two to three years. And so this is not a... Can I just throw one in there? Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to map out these different kind of like coronavirus epochs. And one of them I had is there's going to be like pre and post vaccine as well. Yeah. So we've got kind yeah. of post, post, post lockdown, pre vaccine, right. right. post vaccine. Yeah. And so that's when I say sort of during coronavirus, I think everyone understands like, you know, we're, we're dealing with explosions of this everywhere in the world right now. And even, even if you can for three or four months have mitigation in place, it's not like the virus goes away. <laughs> and so you are, you are, we are absolutely until there's a broadly distributed safe immunization um, that can be worldwide, which is, you know, if you just, you, Bill Gates had a great interview in, in the Financial Times yesterday. I, I'd encourage you to read it. He's one of the sharpest people in the world on this topic. And you know, this is a two plus year journey. So you're going to have, you know, both, you know, it, it just waves of uncontrollable infection that are happening in, in places uh, a lot. But like during that period, the, the world is absolutely not going to be what it was before. And um, you are going to have, if, if you want to maintain very, very low levels of infection, you're going to have structural changes in the way society functions. And then just endemically, behaviorally, people will change um, themselves because they're going to be like, well, I'm not, I don't want to go expose myself to this risk. And the, you know, the recent studies on what, ha- what happened in China suggest that the, uh, you know, the r not in China was actually closer to five. And that's really significant. Um, if you have something with an r not of five, the intensity of what you need to do to keep to, to get the, the infection rate below one is, is pretty severe. And what that suggests is that if you have you know, mildly relax uh, where we are today, you're still going to have very high infection rates. And then you're going to have waves of going back into lockdown. And, and so um, that's, you know, that's tricky. And most Western countries do not, they're not, we're not living under authoritarian regimes with total observation of society, with the ability to put military police outside of every apartment building, to have, you know, an app that tracks all your status and has code levels that scanned at every checkpoint in the society. Like we don't have that. They have that in China. Um, and, and, and that will be, it will make it possible for that society and economy to function better. I do not believe that will roll out here. And so you'll, you're, you're going to be dealing with um, th- those kinds of structural changes. And I think from an, to the macroeconomic question and the bailouts and, and, and what this is, is, you know, I think you know, the, the big issue is, you know, the, the, the global economy is a perpetual motion machine. 
and it, it, you know, it is this supply and demand perpetual motion machine. And you know, what, what's happening right now has just never happened in the history of the world, which is you've effectively stopped the machine entirely. Yeah. And when you, when you stop it, it, it's sort of like a nuclear bomb going off and just waves of decimation that are going to happen. And, you know, it's easy to focus on say, you know, what's happening in England or what's happening in the United States, but this is not, this is every country in the world. There's like a nuclear bomb that went off and it's just this explosion of destruction of, 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 of spending and of demand. And you can't just restart that. I think what's happening now is like, uh, you know, you've got a, you've got a dead patient and you're trying to inject like, you know, drugs into them to wake the patient up. Um, the, the, the economic interventions are so swift, so, so significant. And they're really, they're just trying to keep the patient alive during this cardiac arrest during this time. But, you know, you know, we, we, we will probably come out of it, but the damage is going to be very, very severe. And I believe that you will have, you know, very large scale bankruptcy at the household level and at the, at the level of the firm. And there, there isn't enough money to, to address that. The only thing that can Mm -hmm. ultimately address that is productivity is actual economic output that actually generates productivity. And so you know, you're going to, you're going to have this wave of, I think, um, depression like, uh, circumstances in many, many parts of the world. I think in the United States, I think very, very likely in England and, and in other places, I think you're going to have these waves of that. And, um, you know, the, the, there'll be this massive scale public health infrastructure investment to kind of be able to kind of try and cope and manage this. And I, I think, you know, the response will turn to, forms of nationalization of public health systems. You already have that in England, but you know, there'll be forms of nationalization of other industries and very likely attempts to stimulate productivity and demand through large scale infrastructure investments um, that take place. And so the you know, maybe a silver lining here is the United States might get high speed rail, or we might actually see uh, <laughs> massive investments in in green energy production or you know very large scale multi-trillion dollar investments that is you know aimed at creating ultimately productivity and efficiency which is the only way you get out of an economic challenge like that yeah i've been trying to look at the positives as well uh, obviously this is a terrible situation the number of people dying including health workers and in the uk public uh, yeah, public transport workers yeah. as well. This it has been terrible, but I think we're all recognizing positives in our own lives. I'm not driving my car anymore. Yeah. I'm cooking every single meal. I think last night, just because I had to work, I ordered my son a pizza. But that was the first time we've had any takeout in nearly three weeks. I'm cooking every meal fresh. Yeah, I'm talking to people more that I don't normally talk to. I'm exercising. There are all these pos- positives. But obviously, we have this impending economic problem, which, which I think we're very early on in understanding how severe yeah. it's going to be. Um, yeah. Very early on, uh, the, the the trickle effect of this is going to take some time. Yeah. One thing I hope for, and I'm, I'm and I'm really hopeful for, is that if we do come out of this in a new world, that we we come out of a world which is more local, less global. Mm-hmm. So perhaps 
perhaps that leads to more localization or localism with politics, mm-hmm. uh, localism with in terms of trade, in terms of the industries that pop up, mm-hmm. in terms of the new things people do. That's one of the things I'm kind of hopeful for, that, mm-hmm. that that is something we get out of it, rather than striving to get back to where we are, where everything is you know, global and we have to get on yeah. planes here. And I'm kind of hoping it all comes back to that, but I've got a feeling it's going to be... It's mm. going to be really tough times, but that, that's kind of like my green shoots of hope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly have, have, have a lot of green, green shoots of hope. I think um, there, are, there, are, there will be, I think, real opportunities to reconceptualize how, um, you know, how society is organized, how economic, fundamental microeconomic organizations, what we think of as corporations are, are organized, how uh, labor interacts with that, how, you know, trade and commerce happens, like all these, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this very much from the kind of financial and economic sphere, but even at the, at the political sphere as well. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am a technologist. And so I, I think about, you know, how the, these kinds of transformations drive you know radical technological advancements as well and um you know i'm i i am uh, very very bullish on the potential for you know these sort of third generation blockchain infrastructures to be an important set of infrastructure that allows greater levels of self-organization um greater levels of uh coll- collaboration and coordination without large institutions um and and i th- i think that that would be you know back to your comment about local like i i think um you know I, 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 lots of us have different kind of uh, political economies uh in in our backgrounds but one of the one of the models that i you know studied and was very excited about was this idea of anarcho syndicalism and anarcho syndicalism um was sort of expressed as a outgrowth of um, of socialism, but it was designed around the idea of highly decentralized, democratic, uh, self-organized, you know, units of economic organization that were that sort of have these syndicalist systems that would could work internationally as well, um, but with a very high level of, of freedom. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, when I look at projects in the crypto space, like Aragon is a really cool project that is, you know, trying to construct a a model for how a, an, an organization can form and have its governance and have its treasury and have its voting and have its contracts and have all these things implemented on a blockchain and enforced by code and 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 have a a, a human overlay on that as well, of course. But I think that we can see interesting building blocks um, that emerge that uh, are new forms of organization for uh, for how our societies and economy function and and I'd like to see I'd like to see that pursued in the coming years I've just written written that down that's going to be my next reading topic now after this interview <laughs> well listen Jeremy I've, I've really really enjoyed this this was a great chat um, you're welcome you. to come back uh, on the show uh, whenever you want in the future um, I, I think we could probably go on for a few hours at this one but I do want to just give you the opportunity to tell people how to follow what you're doing and what Circle are doing. Just if somebody's interested after this, where should they head? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter, Jer Lair, um, and 
and you know circle.com is is where you find our company and um you know we've a, a lot of awesome stuff that's rolling out there for how you know businesses can use usdc and um if you're a technically minded uh or a developer uh we have like developer sandboxes where you can get in and start you know using api services that we're launching and uh but you know we're on uh we're on twitter and medium and um and at circle.com Fantastic. Well, look, appreciate your time. Good luck with everything. And hopefully at some point we're going to get back to some normality where perhaps I will be able to get on a plane and maybe I'll get out to Boston and, and see a see a Red Sox game, which I've never actually seen. So I will look forward to that and, and happy to host you, Peter. Fantastic. Listen, take care. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You too. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. So what did you think of that? And what do you think of stablecoins? The use case has always been clear, but it gets into this weird world where I can definitely see the role they play, even in complementing Bitcoin, but most are built using platforms which some of the most technical people are concerned about the long-term viability of. I only own Bitcoin, and I do actually every month. Somebody keeps sending me BAT, which I immediately convert into Bitcoin, but I only own Bitcoin, and I do hold a mild interest in stablecoins. I am considering that during a time of crisis, would it be better to de-risk my bank by holding a certain amount of digital fiat currency, probably digital dollars, because I expect during this time of crisis that the dollar is the most stable currency. But what do you think? Is this something you're doing? What do you think of stablecoins? It would be great to hear from you. You can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And yeah, as I said, I'm really sick. I've got food poisoning. Like the worst time to get food poisoning when I'm already in lockdown. So I've been in bed all day, but big shout out to my producer, Danny, who's worked around the clock to get this show out. And yeah, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Have a great weekend. Stay healthy, stay safe, and I will see you soon.